Father, what a glorious day it is as we come together in celebration of the great victory of our Lord Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. We thank you, Father, for the work of redemption that you accomplished in our behalf for your rising again for our justification. Thank you for every good and perfect gift which comes down from, from above, from the Father of lights, without whom there is no shadow or turning. And Lord, we received an offering today. We give you thanks for that. For this fellowship of believers, for their earnest prayers for one another, for their service to one another. I pray for those who may not be able to be here today for whatever reason that you would just encourage them and bless them with the message of the resurrection as they look to the scriptures, perhaps even alone. Thanking you for each and every one of our missionaries and those of like mind who have gone out into the world to, to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, now as we draw our attention to your word, I pray, God, that our hearts, even though the message is so familiar to us, Lord, will just be renewed even once again with the thought of what you have done, the victory that you have obtained, and that one day, Lord, we, we will see you in that glorified, resurrected body. We give you praise, honor, and glory that you alone deserve. In Jesus' name, amen. No event in history has had a greater impact on humanity than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But in addition to the historical implications, I believe the theological implications are even greater. Historian Yaroslav Pelikan said this, Seems like a contradiction, but it, but it really isn't. If Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. If Christ did not conquer death, all of the historic confessions of the faith would be falsified. The doctrines of Christology, cosmology, soteriology, ecclesiology, eschatology, they all fall. Everything falls if the resurrection of Jesus Christ did not occur. A Savior who said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it would have been a failure. A Savior who did not rise from the dead cannot justify anyone and give them a future. And that's why nothing else would matter. The Apostle Paul made that crystal clear in 1 Corinthians 15.7 when he says, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most to be pitied. Nothing else matters. But since Jesus has risen from the dead, nothing else matters in comparison in the sense that those who believe in him have a glorious future in store for them, and the trials of this life are nothing in comparison. And that's what Paul said in Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. 
And 1 Corinthians 15, which I alluded to, is one of the earliest extant writings about the resurrection appearances. It was penned around A.D. 55. That is just 22 years from the time of Jesus' death. In verse 6 of that chapter, Paul says he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. They have died. I say to you this morning that the resurrection of Christ stands on solid historical grounds, and the theological significance of it is vital to our faith. In the Lexham Survey of Theology, it says the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that central moment in history that serves as the foundational doctrine of Christianity. After having truly assumed human nature and submitted to the agonizing and shameful public death, the eternal Son of God was truly raised from the dead in his glorified physical body, no longer subject to any decay or death. He then lists three practical effects of the resurrection. Number one, Christ's resurrection validated or authenticated his identity as the Son of God. Romans 1.4 says he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Secondly, it demonstrates his irrevocable victory over death and the grave. Acts 2.24, God raised him up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Romans 6, 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion or or meaning lordship or mastery over him. He conquered death. And then thirdly, it secures both the present salvation and the future physical resurrection of every believer. That's what Paul said in Romans 6, 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we also believe that we will what? Live with him. We will live with Christ. And Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, that when this corruptible, when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal, speaking of our bodies, has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, grave, where is your victory? Amazing thing, wasn't it? What Jesus did in, in dying for our sins and rising again. Jesus was the first fruit of a great harvest to come. Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus 23. Verse 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Did you note that? On the day after the Sabbath, the priest will wave it. This was the the spring feast, the barley harvest, the cereal harvests. 
And his S.H. Kellogg in his studies in Leviticus says, The offering unto God commemorated Israel's separation from the nations as a first fruits of redemption. That's what this offering was, the offering of the first fruits. And it symbolically signified the consecration of Israel unto God as the firstborn unto him from all the nations. And then he adds this, the beginning of a great world harvest. This is interesting, isn't it? The beginning of a great world harvest. Jesus was crucified on Friday, Nisan the 14th. Don't, don't ever let anybody tell you he was crucified on Wednesday. It just doesn't work. He was crucified on Friday, Nisan the 14th. The Sabbath began at 6 p.m. that day. And it would end on 6 p.m. Saturday the night, Nisan the 15th. Now, when you read the scripture carefully, you will find that it was actually a double Sabbath. Because the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread began that day as well. And that's why in John 19.31, it says they had to take the body down from the cross. And it says, because it was a high Sabbath. It was a double Sabbath. The day after the Sabbath, which we read in Leviticus 23, the day after the Sabbath, which ended on Saturday night at 6 p.m., was Nisan the 16th, the day of first fruits. The priest lifted up the offering and waved it before the Lord, we read in Leviticus. And the fruit that came from the earth, from the tomb, was lifted up before the Lord. And Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I will bring in a great harvest. When I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. No coincidence at all that Jesus was raised from the dead on the day of first fruits. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and become the first fruits of those who have what? Fallen asleep. Died. Now the resurrection of Jesus represents our resurrection because if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, in other words, received his death as the payment for our sins, we will also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Romans 8.11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. Hallelujah. Let me add another hallelujah to all the hallelujahs, right? Every single person who has put their faith in Christ will receive a resurrected body one day. Absent from the body, Paul says, is to be what? Present with the Lord. And Christ being the first fruit means that many others will follow him in the likeness of his resurrection, that great harvest. Praise God. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's words in Philippians 3.20, who will transform our, what? our lowly body. I like the King James, vile body, right? 
our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. He will bring it to pass. You know, the first apologetic book, or one of the first that I've ever read, was Dr. Henry Morris' Many Infallible Proofs. And many infallible proofs substantiate the resurrection of Christ. Acts 1.1, Paul, or Luke says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandment to his apostles, whom he had chosen. And then he says this, To whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Anthony Flew, if you know the name, was a famous British atheist. He was a convert from atheism to deism. He came to believe there was a God. I don't think there's any evidence that he bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, but he may have. But he affirms that the evidence for the resurrection is better than for the claimed miracles in any other religion. He says it's outstandingly different in quality and quantity. All told, Jesus appeared 11 times on earth to various individuals in different groups at different times. I think we have a, a picture of this. Just leave this on here for a little bit. I'll work my way through it a little bit. Not all the way, and then I'll come back. But we could take it off. What is some of the most powerful witness in a court of law. Powerful testimony. Eyewitness testimony. Now, it's much stronger than when the testimony is near to the time when the event happened, right? If somebody survived World War II Pearl Harbor, and I'm sure there there may be a few left, I don't know, and he writes a a story, you know, last year or by his biography telling about what happened at Pearl Harbor. That's eyewitness testimony, but it's a long time ago, per, you know, 50, 60, whatever the years ago. It's a long time ago, more than that. But when you have eyewitness testimony very near to the time of the event, that is even more significant. The first appearance was to Mary Magdalene in John chapter 20. Then to Mary and Salome in Matthew 28. Then to the disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. Then to Peter, same chapter. Next were the ten apostles gathered in a room without Thomas in Luke 24. Then to the ten plus Thomas in John 20. Then to a group of seven, which is a very interesting one, after an all-night failed fishing trip in John chapter 21. Then to the apostles in Galilee in Matthew chapter 28. Then to 500 people at one time in 1 Corinthians 15, 6. And I I want to dwell on that one for a moment. 500 people at one time. Critics say that that was a mass hallucination. Listen, there there, there is a phenomenon known as mass hysteria. But mass hallucinations do not exist. Hallucinations are an individual event. If 500 people have the same hallucination, that's a greater miracle than the resurrection. (laughs) That theory, the the hallucination theory, is one of numerous natural 
theories that have been presented by the skeptics who don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But let me tell you something today, all right? The naturalistic theories of Christ's resurrection have to the most part been abandoned by over 75% of the liberal scholars. And I don't mean these are people on the streets who object to Jesus Christ. I mean they've been rejected by people who have terminal degrees, teaching universities, and they're liberal. They don't go with them anymore. They, know they don't believe them anymore. They don't appeal to them. Why? Because they cannot account for the historical data. Facts are stubborn things. The fundamental barrier to believing in the resurrection is not scientific and it's not historical. It's an anti-supernatural bias. So these liberal scholars, when they're questioned, why don't you believe in the resurrection? They don't say, oh, the hallucination theory or somebody came and stole his body or all these other ideas. They say because... I don't believe in the Wizard of Oz. You're asking me to believe something that, that's just akin to a fairy tale. And I can't do that. Acts 1.8 says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. And when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up, and the Bible says, a cloud received him out of sight. The man who wrote the book of Acts was Luke. Luke was a traveling companion of the apostle Paul. Was he a reliable historian? Internal evidence shows that this book was written before 70 AD. And indeed, he was a reliable historian. There are 84 facts. In the last 16 chapters of the book of Acts alone that have been confirmed by historical and archaeological research. He was a historian of first rank. Noted scholar Sherwin White said for, the, for Acts, the confirmation of historicity is overwhelming. Any attempt to reject its basic Christianity or historicity must now appear as absurd. That's in Roman society and the Roman law in the New Testament. Luke's accuracy is demonstrated by the facts that he names key historical figures in the correct time sequence as well as correct titles to government officials. Luke names 32 countries, 54 cities, 9 islands without error. And his mastery of the Greek language is equal to any of the classical Greek writers. Now, after the appearance to the 500, Jesus appeared to his half-brother James. I was in 1 Corinthians 15, 7. And that's an interesting one because the, it appears from all accounts in Scripture that that appearance to James, his half-brother, led to him becoming a believer. And within a generation of the crucifixion, James was put to death for preaching the gospel. Jesus then appeared to the 11 disciples as they ascended into heaven. That was the final one before the appearance to Paul. And we read, he tells them, 
go, well, you are my witnesses, and so forth. And to preach the gospel was for the apostles to preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Saul was consenting to his death, says in Acts 8.1. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered abroad through the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial, first Christian martyr, and they made great lamentation over him. But it says this in, in Acts 8.3, As for Saul, he made ha- havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. But it says in verse 4, Therefore those who were scattered went, went everywhere preaching the word. God used the persecution to drive them out from Jerusalem to begin preaching the gospel everywhere. And what did they preach? They preached about the person, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection plays a crucial role in the longest speech of Peter on the day of Pentecost. Of the two longest speeches of Paul in Sidon Antioch and before Herod Agrippa in Acts 2.13 and Acts 26. In 12 sermons covering the period from the day of Pentecost, that's 50 days after the crucifixion, to the close of Paul's Caesarean imprisonment in A.D. 60 as the gospel moved out from Jerusalem all the way to Rome, the preaching of the resurrection commanded a prominent place. And one example of this is on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.29, where Peter says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us today. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him, that of the fruit of his body, according to his flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on the throne, he foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of Jesus, listen, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did flesh see his flesh see corruption, This Jesus God has raised up, which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God. Mark that phrase down, being exalted to the right hand of God. That was in the Jewish mind, blasphemy. Having seen the resurrected Christ was also a requirement to fulfill the, uh, the office of an apostle vacated by, by Judas. They had to see the resurrected Christ in order to be an apostle, Acts one twenty two. And think about this. As the apostles went everywhere preaching the word, they were repeatedly beaten and imprisoned for the sake of Jesus, even suffering martyrdom for their preaching. You can go to Acts 4, it says Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the, the temple, the Sadducees, came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So they laid hands on them, it says, and they, they put him in custody until the next day because it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed. And the number came to be about 5,000. Something is happening through the preaching of the word of God and the, and the preaching of the, about the resurrection of Jesus. So it says in Acts 4, 6, it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, well, they had to do something about this. 
So they gathered together in Jerusalem. And when they had set the apostles, Peter and John, in their midst, they said, By what power or by what name have you done this, the healing of this lame man? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged by a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be made known unto you and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. We didn't do it. The resurrected Jesus did it. So it says there in Acts 4.18, they, they called him and they commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered and said to him, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Like John says in 1 John 5, our hands have handled the word of life. Church tradition maintains that as many as 11 of the 12 apostles were eventually martyred. Now listen, it's not unusual for men to die for their religious zeal, right? Suicide bombers do that frequently. The 9-11 terrorists did it. 19 of them believed that they would be rewarded after their death with 72 virgins in paradise. What's the difference between them and the apostles' willingness to die as martyrs? The 9-11 terrorists could not know what they were dying for and be rewarded for was true. They had never seen Allah. They had never seen his prophet Muhammad. But unlike the terrorists, those terrorists, the apostles were in a position to know with complete certainty whether Christ's claims were true and their claims were true. They were claiming to have seen, touched, and conversed the man who had been executed just days earlier. So Muslim author Riza Aslan, who argues that it's impossible to know exactly what happened after Jesus' death, nonetheless recognized the significance of these considerations. So he writes, what can, One could simply dismiss the resurrection as a lie and declare belief in the risen Jesus to be the product of a deluded mind. This is a Muslim. However, there is, there is this nagging fact. Facts are stubborn things. There is this nagging fact to consider. One after another of those who have claimed to have witnessed the risen Jesus went to their own gruesome deaths, refusing to recant their testimony. He said, that is not in itself unusual. Many zealous Jews died horribly for refusing to deny their beliefs. But these first followers of Jesus were not being asked to reject matters of faith based on events that took place centuries, if not millennia before. They were being asked to deny something they themselves personally, directly encountered. That's what made it so real. Hey, he rose from the dead. You can do whatever you want with me. Take my life. I'll be with him. He's going to take me to be with him. Like Stephen, who was martyred, he saw Jesus 
Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. Think about this. There was no personal encounter more startling and life-changing than that of a man called Saul of Tarsus. In Acts 9, he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He goes to the high priest. He asks, he asks for letters from him to the synagogue of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, that's a Christian, whether men or women, he would bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as scripture says, as he was going along his way there, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone round about him from heaven. And he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord says, I am Yeshua, who you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Now think about this. Saul of Tarsus was not an ordinary Jewish man. He was a very strict law-abiding adherent to the Torah. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. He was a disciple of Gamaliel, one of the premier teachers of the law in the first century. And so intense was his devotion to Judaism that he wanted these Christians dead. But his life was changed in a moment when he saw and he heard the Lord Jesus on the Damascus road. And from the moment Paul said to Jesus, Lord, what do you want me to do? From that very moment, Paul gave himself completely to Jesus. Entirely. He went everywhere preaching the word, establishing churches writing most of the New Testament epistles, beaten from city to city, imprisoned several times, and ultimately dying by martyrdom because he had seen the Lord Jesus. Nothing else really mattered. Nothing. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, Last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time, for I am, not, I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Wow, what an encounter he had, right? And what a man he became because of it. The homologia of the early church included the necessity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now that sounds like a... Maybe a word you didn't hear before, but the word homologia is a compound word. Homo means same, and logia means lagos, word. So the homologia of the early church was the same word. Things which are believed among us is what it means. It was called the marketplace message of the church. They went everywhere preaching this. These same things that they had come to believe. And by the way, they began to do it very early on. Now, a lot of times critics have said, and not critics, but people have said, well, what's the highest Christology 
in the New Testament. And they'll say, well, the, the book of John. And in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and so forth, and so on. And that was written, what, about 90 A.D., so that's a late book. But I'll submit to you to this morning that the early church had the homologia, the same word, which was a very high Christology, a very high view of Christ. Now, these early Christian creeds, what we call the homologia, the same word, they were short statements about Jesus that were easily committed to memory and therefore an excellent way to spread the truth. And, you know, you have these little nursery rhymes or whatever it is, and they kind of flow together, and you use them to teach your little kids stories and things like that. That's how you have to think of a very short, easily committed to memory, and the truth spread rapidly because the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the central part of them. It really was. Gary Habermas, I told you Friday night, that he's writing his magnum opus on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I, I went back and looked at it again, and I heard his, just heard his most recent story. It's 5,000 pages. Think about that. This man has written 5,000 pages on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and 80% of it is new material that he did not write in the 20 books on the resurrection that he wrote previously. I mean, he's gone into depth as no man has ever gone into depth before on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's come out of it all the more convinced. He is risen as he said. Hallelujah. But he said this, the homologia contained the earliest proclamations by Christians by 36 A.D., this is just a few years after the crucifixion, even earlier. Here I'll give you some examples. He is called Christ or Messiah. That's a, that's a common confession. That was blasphemy to the Jews. He was this, called the Son of God and Lord. Paul said, if you confess Jesus Christ as Lord, you will be saved. That was blasphemy to the Jews. He was said to be pre-existent. Philippians chapter 2. That was blasphemy to the Jews. He was of the very nature of God, the very morphe, the very form of God. Philippians chapter 2. That was blasphemy. And he is seated, the Bible says, and these Christians preached at the right hand of God to the Jews. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. That's what got Jesus in real trouble at one of his trials. He didn't refute it. Let me give you an example of a homologia, an early Christian creed. 1 Timothy 3.16. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. That's the incarnation. Justified in the spirit. That's the resurrection. Seen by angels, his triumph. Preached among the Gentiles, his proclamation. Believed on the world, the gospel advancement. Received up into glory, his ascension. There you are. There's your catechism lesson. And this is what they went preaching. Another 
1 Corinthians 15.3, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he arose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, that's easy to commit to memory, right? And that's what Paul said he preached when he came into Corinth. I declare this to you. That's a pretty high Christology right there. Philippians 3, 7, he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Amen. There's another creed. Romans 4.25, he was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised for our justification. That's easy to remember too. Let me, let me close with this. The historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is massive. Massive. It cannot be easily dismissed. And the theological implications of it are critical. You must see the crucifixion through the lens of the resurrection. It's the only way you'll understand the cross if you comprehend the open tomb, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection certifies who Jesus was, fully God and fully man, what he came to do, suffer and die to give eternal life to those who believe, and what it means to you if you believe it and if you don't. No resurrection, nothing else matters. Right? Because we know he rose again. Nothing else really matters in comparison either. Jesus, John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to her, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. A scripture that has always had great meaning to me personally. Is John, 1 John 5, 11. Because as a Roman Catholic, I, I did not know, really. <laughs> I mean, I was a pretty good sinner, to put it mildly. You know, and I didn't know if, well, I didn't have a really good chance at dying in what they call the state of grace. You know, at best, I don't know, I'd be spending some time in purgatory, you know, which was false doctrine. But this meant a lot to me when I got saved. First John 5, 11, this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. But he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Listen to me, all right? You're here this morning because I believe God brought you here. You either have life in Jesus Christ or you do not. 
He who has the Son of God has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things have I written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know with certainty, I add, that you have eternal life. Wow. You know, trying to be a Catholic, you know, going to confession, feeling really good about, you know, receiving, quote, unquote, you know, the forgiveness of my sins by the absolution of the priest, it didn't last long. I mean, it barely lasted that day. Monday, back to the same old time. All that guilt that was taken away came all the back on again. And that's what I carried with me. Not sure what would happen to me after I died. But hallelujah. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. No more burden, no more guilt. Gone. Forever gone. So here's my questions. Do you know for sure this morning that you have eternal life through Jesus Christ and Christ alone? Do you believe that Jesus came to this earth to die for your sins? Do you believe he died on the Jewish Passover as the sacrificial lamb of God? Do you believe he rose again on the third day, the first fruit of a great harvest to come, just as the scriptures proclaim? I'll say this in closing. I don't know your heart. I don't know where you are at or not at with the Lord. I cannot argue anyone into believing in Jesus and his resurrection, and neither can any of you, right? Power is not in you. I cannot reason with you or try to cleverly persuade you to give your life to Jesus Christ. All that I can do and any witness, any Christian can do, is present what the scriptures say to declare unto you the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that he was, what? Crucified, buried, and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. That's all I I can do or any of you can do and pray that the Holy Spirit will do the work that he alone can do on the heart of those unbelievers who hear it. But I will add this. The scripture says this. It's a biblical command. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. If you are here today without Christ, I believe I have made a clear presentation of the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Today, if the Spirit of God is working in your heart and convicting you that you need Jesus, you've lived a wretched life. You're not worthy of eternal life. Neither were any of us, right, who know Christ. But Jesus has offered you complete forgiveness through faith in him. As far as your sins 
Our concern is he's willing to remove them out of his sight and bury them in the depths of the sea. That's grace. That's mercy. I appeal to you this morning. If you know not Christ, today do not harden your heart. Bow your knee. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for this word made clear for each one who has heard it today that God, you will continue to work in their life, in all of our lives. Help us to take this simple message of the the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to those who need to hear as your witnesses, your ambassadors, Bless, Lord, the the preaching of the gospel this day and every day as it goes forward in the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.